All right, well, good morning, good morning. If you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Making our way slowly but surely through Peter's precious words here, words that were um, hand-picked, as it were, by the Spirit of God so that we would own them, so that we would know them, they would characterize us. Remember in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, which is where we are, remember all these terms are, are adjectives. These are terms that must describe the Christian community there that Peter's writing to, these believers that are living all over, all over Asia. Um, he's writing these terms that these terms would characterize us. When people come in here to New Covenant, they would see a harmonious bunch. They would see a sympathetic bunch. They would see a brotherly people people that are kind-hearted, a people that are humble in spirit. And as we're going to look at today, also a, a people that are not those who retaliate, not those who are vindictive, not those who exploit personal offenses. And Peter says in verse 9, which is what we'll be looking at today, not returning evil for evil. Or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let's pray. Father, this morning again we come to your word. This is your word. These are sound words. And we pray that you would make them our own. And Lord, that we would take on the mind of Christ, Lord, the mind of Christ, the the heart of Christ, that when others cursed him, when others mocked him, beat him, instead he prayed for them and died for them and rose for them. Lord, if we would have been there that in those hours of your trial, Lord, we certainly would have been there yelling crucify in our own flesh, Lord, that's that's what we want in our own flesh. We don't want God in our lives. In our own flesh, we don't want you in our lives. We don't want your authority. And so, Lord, we don't look down on those. And, Lord, those very ones that were yelling that, some of them in that very crowd, Lord, you spilled your blood for. And so, Lord, help us to have this mindset. Help our behavior to be shaped by the cross in all things. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. In verse 8, Peter talked about these characteristics that should characterize us as we interact with the body. And I don't think that he's left his thought too far behind in the sense that this still applies to the body. But I think this, these, these instructions here start to broaden out even more. He talks about people doing evil to you, people insulting you, these kinds of things. And again, certainly this can apply to those interactions in the body the body can sometimes bite and devour one another can't they Um, but it can also happen in the world as Peter is writing his whole letter he is kind of trying to instruct the Christians there in Asia as to how to live in this world where you are going to be treated unjustly at some point in your Christian life you are going to be offended to various degrees you are going to be persecuted all who want to live godly lives, right, are persecuted, the, the scriptures say very plainly. And so Peter, recognizing that, is trying to get these people firm foundation, firm footing when they are 
when they are encountering this evil and this, these insults and this persecution so that they will suffer well and suffer like Christ, to suffer according to the gospel, recognizing that they are aliens and exiles, as chapter 1 tells us. But let's start looking at this a little, a, a little in depth here. So Peter starts out by saying that we are not to return evil for evil. One of the first things we can observe from this is that Peter assumes that evil exists in the world. Right? It's not a fiction. Evil is real. It exists in the world. He knows, and he knows believers will have to face it. He knows that you and I will encounter it. And he knows that believers will be forced to respond to it when it happens to them. And here the evil that he's referring to are not sort of natural disasters or sickness that occurs, something like that, sort of in the realm of just, I don't know, evil that happens in a fallen world. But no, he's talking rather about relationships. He's talking about offenses. He's talking about insults. He's talking about evil done with some gesture or action or with the tongue toward these Christians to tear them down or to shame them in some way. That's what he's talking about. So what do you do when people insult you, when people attack you, or when people just do some, could be a gesture, could be some evil they do against you? What do you do? And like I said, this could be evil that is experienced in the unbelieving world where maybe you've got coworkers or even family members that aren't believers neighbors that just they say or they do something to you that's just evil i mean it it could be as simple as your neighbor spreading gossip about you and not not and, and telling other neighbors about you and defaming your character because you don't keep your yard the way they want you to i mean this happens this happens in neighborhoods it could be something that small and you know about it and then you've got to engage with that you got to see that neighbor every day you know Maybe you're known as a Christian in the workplace and people call you bigot and arrogant because you stand for um, the biblical version of marriage. And you've been, they find that out and now you're the bigot. You're the narrow one. This can happen. You get ostracized. Or worse, as happened to my father-in-law, You're cornered by a militant Islamic mob who wants your blood because you've been sharing the gospel with their family members. (laughs) That's evil, isn't it? The, the, The realm here is pretty broad. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. But it can also be an experience we have with people in the body. You know, Christians at times can be duped by Satan, can't they? As, as Paul tells Timothy, they can, they can be held captive by him to do, their, to do his will at certain points. I mean, Peter was a good man, but yet Peter was exploited by the attack of Satan, wasn't he? To stop Jesus from going to the cross. It can happen. And the way Satan usually wants to come at us is he wants to come at us by way of division. You know, he wants to come at us by insult. Something like that. But Peter doesn't get real specific. He just says evil for evil, insult for insult, don't return. So, 
Peter knows that this, this exists in the world. He knows that this can happen in the body. It can happen in the body with gossip. It can happen in the body with hasty assessments, slanders, insults. It's just the hard reality of people living in community this side of heaven. I mean, it, 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 it will happen. And Peter says, if, if someone is rude or harsh or slanderous toward you, step one is not to return the action. It's not to return the favor. He says, not returning evil for evil. If someone insults you, you find out, or they insult you to your face. Your first step is to not return that favor. Don't return it. That's the first step. Don't return evil for evil. This can be hard. It can be extremely hard. Peter's words exhort us to absorb wrongdoing without retaliation in kind. How good are you at that? How good are you at doing that? Absorbing wrongdoing or offense or insult. What do, we, what do we normally want to do? We want to get cold. We want to stiff arm. Never talk to him again. That may be on a good day. Right? Peter says when these offenses come, the first step is not to retaliate. At least do not retaliate. If it were easy, Peter would not have to instruct us in these things, Right? But we need instruction. We need reminders. This is so helpful in this world, isn't it? When we're offended, sometimes it feels so complicated. Like, how do we, how do we work our way through this? Doesn't it? They can get complicated. And the situations can be complicated. Enemy, loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you and, and not returning evil for evil, seeking after that which is good for one another, that can get kind of complicated at times. But still... Peter's getting to the heart. The heart of the matter here is that fundamentally here, it's not really about you. When you're offended, it's just not really fundamentally about you. It's not about you justifying yourself, vindicating yourself before the eyes of men. That's actually not the the most important thing. It feels like it is, doesn't it? To exonerate yourself in the eyes of men, that's really what we want. I've known people that think certain things about the way I handle situations as a leader or the way I addressed a person and they've thought evil of me. They've even colored my motives. There are times when I have a sneaking suspicion that there are others thinking evil things of me, but I I don't want to chase it down to prove it. And my approach as a leader and as a Christian to these things must not be to think of all the evil they've done and, and sort of fire back to them with all manner of insults and accusations. Right? I can't listen to my flesh that wants that justification, that vindication. Our flesh so wants to shame the other person in that moment. We just do. But Peter says, do not return evil for evil. But here's the thing, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hold your tongue. Does he? That's, 
easier. But he doesn't just say that. He says, but give a blessing instead. Now we're in the realm of ridiculous. Right? Now we're in the realm of ridiculous. Now we're in the realm where we're like, okay, Peter. (laughs) I mean, I think you're pretty naive. Idealistic. Right? How can you say to someone who says, you're proud and arrogant, Peter, and it not be true in those moments, to, to return some manner of blessing to them? I mean, that just feels like, you, Peter, you're just, what you're doing here is you're setting up Christians as doormats. That's what you're doing. Hmm. Is that what Peter's doing? Well, maybe to some degree. Not that he really wants them to be doormats. But what he wants them to understand, like I said earlier, is that these insults and offenses aren't fundamentally about you. Some of you who've experienced intense conflict in relationships where people are bringing all kinds of slander against you for no good reason. Not that there's ever a good reason for slander. You've experienced that just that heat that comes and that pressure that comes with that, with owning that label over your head that you know is not true. And it's so hard to not personalize that. It's so hard not to take that to heart. But what Paul tells us, what what Peter tells us is that we have an adversary and we have this conflict that exists in the spiritual realm. And this, this whole battle here that's going on between you and them is spiritual in nature. It's not necessarily about personality conflicts. It's about the greater war going on. It's about the fact that we have an enemy that wants to divide. That's what it is. And the best way, the best defense to that kind of, that kind of situation where someone is bringing accusation against you, the best the best way to preserve unity, the best way to preserve love, the best way to preserve sort of the, the fragrance of the gospel is to return it with blessing and not another insult. And not, oh, you want to say that about me? Well, let me point out all the things I know about you. Peter says that's, that's actually demonic. That's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. When someone does evil to you, insults you, misrepresents you, instead of lashing back, Peter isn't just saying, just sit back and isolate from these people. He's not even saying, biting your tongue, he's saying, giving a blessing. Now, it doesn't mean that we go around flattering those who oppose us, right? That does, that's not what it means. Let me make something up, you know, to bless them with some sort of fictitious praise. That's not what Peter is saying at all. He doesn't want them to lie. But he is still saying, in some measure, seek their good. What is blessing here? Blessing means, the, the term here is the term eulogentes, which again means it's our word for eulogy, good words. It means verbal praise or a verbal expression of goodwill. It means good words. It's a participle, meaning it's literally as people are doing evil and insulting you, you are continually blessing. That's the idea. In other words, this isn't like a one 
an occasion where at one time in the past you did this verse. (laughs) This is, for the rest of your life and your Christian life, you are going to have to continue to do this verse. That's the idea. As you are done evil, as you are insulted, you continue to bless. That's the idea. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, and this is actually, this is actually, um, he aims it both at the Christian community there and the unbelieving world. He says, See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all. So there he talks about the one another's and for all people. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. So that's what I mean. Blessing here has to do with seeking after the good of the one who offends you. Now we can def- we're going to define what that is and what that looks like in different occasions. But still the heart attitude is for the good of the other. That's the crux here. The crux here is that you are not there to just shame them into oblivion or to make them feel horrible about themselves. That's not our heart. Our heart is for their good, for their eternal good. In whatever way we can do to push them toward Christ, push them toward repentance, but, but, but for their good. We keep that always in our minds. We bless The right response to evil done against us is not to repay people with evil. It's not to retaliate. It's to seek their good. And it's good, obviously, defined by the Lord. When someone does evil to us, it tests the strength of our identity. Doesn't it? When some, someone does us verbal harm or insults us or accuses us for something that's not true... It tests our identity. So Peter, in the first several chapters of this letter, he he sought to establish our identity in Christ. We don't have time to even touch all of it. But but Peter's talked about the fact that we are bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We are chosen in Christ. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are rich beyond measure. We have an inheritance that's to come that will never fade away. We are exiles here with Christ. These are all the things that we are. He roots our identity so firm and fixed and says this will always be your identity. And he does this so that when someone comes and offends us or tells us something that's contrary to that, we remember who we are first. That we remember our identity, our identity in Christ that will never change. Our value that will always be true, expressed by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. So important, but when, when these offenses come, our identity is tested. Robert Layton, old commentator, he, 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 here in this te- section that I'm going to quote, he, he's commenting on the right spirit that flows out of us from being a true follower of Jesus when we have our identity set, when we're faced with offenses. He says this, A Christian acts and speaks not according to what others are toward him, but according to what he or she is by the grace and spirit of God in him. A little spark blows up one of a sulfurous temper, and yet many coals which represent greater injuries and reproaches are quenched and lose their force 
being thrown at another who has a cool spirit. I love that. The one who's got this temper that isn't rooted in grace, it's not rooted in the gospel, it's not rooted in their identity in Christ, throw one little offense their way and they blow up. Who do you think you are? Right? They blow up. Why? Because they don't, they, their identity is, is tethered to what you think of them. Not what God thinks of them in Jesus Christ. And they blow up. They have a sulfurous temper. little spark blows up. But he says, but throw many coals. Not just a spark, but many coals. Which represent even greater injury and reproach on that one who is firm in grace and those coals are quenched and they lose their force because that one has a cool spirit. And that's what, that's what we're after. What we're after is these insults and the offenses that roll off because we know who we are in Christ. Our greatest goal is not for the praise of men, for everyone to speak well of us. Jesus warned us about that, right? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's how the Pharisees are. Robert Layton goes on and he says this. He says, it cannot be genuine upright goodness that has its dependence upon the goodness of others who are around us. It's not genuine, he says, who have this dependence on the goodness of others around them. As they say of the vainglorious man, his virtue lies in the beholder's eye. If your meekness and your charity and love be such that lies in the good and mild carriage of others towards you, in their hands and in their tongues, you are not an owner of it intrinsically. What he's saying here is that if your desire to do others good only occurs as people do you good, then you need to question the validity of your claim to have the love of Christ. That's what he's saying. We may think of ourselves as oh so gracious and oh so filled with the love of Christ, yet let that same person experience the offense of another Christian, or another person for that matter, and see their true colors. Is is our identity fixed in Christ first? When offenses come, are we firm in who we are in Christ When offenses come, are we utterly depressed or even stirred to outbursts of anger? And please do not misunderstand me. Slanders and accusations are extremely painful. This is not to say that you shouldn't feel the pain of it. That's not not what Peter Peter knows it will be painful. Jesus knew it was painful. King David... Knew it was painful. But faith looks beyond that pain. And it sees the Lord Jesus who incurred the same treatment. And faith is able to grab hold of that truth, right? And bear up under that load in faithfulness to Christ. Not perfectly, but with the Lord. With the Lord. Recognizing this is not about you. And sometimes the Lord brings these things into your life to teach you that very lesson. You may think you're going to do really well at it. Oh, let somebody say something to me. And then, okay, 
and the Lord does it, right? Be careful what you profess and think about yourself. The Lord can bring people into your life to humble you pretty quick and to make you realize that your identity needs to be more fixed and firm in Christ and need to be more aware of the warfare that that truly goes on out there. And oftentimes those things can happen to help others. You may go through this whole experience yourself and and then you may be able to help others. I mean, oftentimes that, that, that is the case. It's such a blessing in that sense. But they can be testing times to reveal where our identity lies. So I try to come up with a few examples of what blessing those who insult us may look like. These are, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It's kind of hard, but it's, it's just an attempt at just trying to capture something of what Peter's saying. Let's say it's someone who's got a track record of being a faithful brother or sister in Christ. And let's say, let's say they're having a dry season. Maybe they have a season of no sleep. <laughs> right? I'm still waiting for that season to stop in my life. But let's just say that. Let's just say they're a faithful brother and sister in Christ, but they're having a dry season. And they, they come up to you and they say something insulting to you. Right? Like what you said the other day, you were really being a jerk to me. You know, or, or just something. They just say something. You have no idea what they're talking about. You have an option at that moment. Right? You, can, you can lash back out with some remark. Well, what about you? I mean, look at you. I mean, you go around moping around, depressed. I mean, where's your faith? Right? You go back with the accusations, right? You can do that. That wouldn't be good. Sometimes that's our impulse, isn't it? Or you could say, brother, are you all right? You know I love you, man. I, I just, I'm not sure what, what's going on. Can I pray for you? That's a blessing, isn't it? To have someone to just, you just stop and you say, can we, can we pray? Or let's say you've just met a visitor that's come to the church and they come with accusations. They're back there and they experience a service with us and they come up to us afterwards and they say, your church is so unorganized. How can God ever use you? What do you do? What do you say to those people who say that? They've only been here one time. Hmm. How do you bless them? Well, you think, well, what is best for these people here? You could fire back and you could tell them, who do you think you are? You've been here one time. We don't need you. In your flesh, that's what you probably want to say. It's what I want to say in those moments, right? But you can't. You can't say that. So what do you do? I don't know. You say something like, well, you know what? I know we've got a long way to go in these things. And maybe put it back on them and, and just ask them plainly and say, what, what does the Bible say is that which gains the blessing of the Lord? Maybe, maybe you ask them a question to get them to think about the scriptures. Calm, kind, but get, get them to think because they need correction at some level, right? 
You don't want to discount also their observation, but you also can't fire back in kind. And see, at that point, you're, 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 when you ask him the question, well, what does the Bible say about the blessing of the Lord, and how does it come? Well, then we're pointing people back to the blessing of the Scriptures. There's all kinds of situations at work, too, that you can face. You know, with unre- I, I face unreasonable clients from time to time, and people that just, yeah, just being very unreasonable, and I have a choice at that point to put my foot down and especially clients who, thinks that we're, who think that uh, we're trying to price gouge them or something, which we don't. Um, in some measure, I sympathize with them because prices these days are so high. But these people that come accusing me, this, there was a guy the other day that accused me. He said something like, well, I hope you enjoy, what did he say? Something like, look, I'm going to butt out of this job. My wife's going to take over. I hope, you enjoy, I hope you enjoy price gouging her from here on out like you've been doing. I was like, First of all, I've got a clean conscience before the Lord. And I'm happy to come to you and talk to you about all the, the change orders and stuff that your wife has approved. But you have to be careful in those moments, isn't it? I mean, because you know, I really I don't want to be that kind in my flesh. But you know, after I softened, and I, or not softened, but after I responded with a soft tongue, soft answer, talk about these things, he ended up saying... You know what? Just sorry about that. I was pointing fingers. Forgive me. For, forbear with me on these things. He was a conflicted man. It's, it's a long story, but he's a conflicted man. You don't know what's going on behind the surface sometimes, you know. You just don't know. But if I were to rail back at him, like, um, who do you think you are? You know, if I were to come back at him, it's just, that's just, it's just an explosion. And plus, it doesn't adorn the gospel very well, right? And even in this particular matter, it's relatively small. Even though it doesn't feel small in the moment, it's, it's still relatively small. But the way that I responded, by God's grace in those moments, established my credibility with him more in his eyes. Because ultimately my desire is not to be right. My desire is for this man to see this is what someone who follows Jesus is like. That's what I want. Well, let's say, think about this. This one may pertain more to you ladies. Think of the fact that you hear that some ladies are getting together for an outing. Maybe they're getting together for coffee, and you were offended that you were not invited. Now, this isn't necessarily evil done to you, like on purpose, probably. But sometimes that kind of stuff, especially if it's ladies that you're a little more closer with, you're like, well, that stings a little. You've got an option at that point, right? You can be offended and hurt and not talk to them anymore. Or think of all the bad things that they've done or, and all the good things you've done for them. You can, you, can, you can construct all these things in your mind. Or, as you know they're going to get together, you can stop and pray for them and say, Lord, I just pray that you encourage their time. They'd all be built up. That's a blessing, isn't it? Isn't that so much better? It gets your heart right and then maybe it'll, it'll summon the, the blessing of the Lord on these ladies as they meet. And maybe if they were trying to slight you, the next time you have such a, a heart for them, you say, hey, you know, I prayed for that time for you. Perhaps if they genuinely were trying to ostracize you, maybe the kindness there will lead them to some measure of repentance. But it's about your heart, isn't it? 
And, and it's, the, it's the desire to want to do people good. You want, to, you want people to flourish. Well, what do you think about, this is similar to this, but you just have a general sense that people aren't paying as much attention to you as you need in the body. These people, don't, they don't call me as much. As I, you know, they, they, I don't hear from anybody. You know, those kinds of things. I hear that you know, from time to time. So what if you're that person who says that? People aren't paying as much attention to me. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not reaching out. Well, again, you can stew or you can pray for them. And you could even think the best of them and you could open your home or, or, or take people out for a meal or just in some way be a blessing to them. Again, because the comments of that start to just reveal it's about you, isn't it? It's not about you serving others, it's about others serving you. Now don't get me wrong, I mean, if somebody is genuinely weak and, and, they, and they need encouragement and help and we've overlooked that, well that's our fault. I mean, we need, to, we need to own that. But most of the time when I hear this, it's not that. We just, we just need to understand we are not here to be served. We're not here to even be treated the way we want to be treated. That would be nice. No, we're here, as Jesus says, to take up our cross and follow him, love one another as he did, which was laying down his life for them. So that's our model, that's our pattern, and that's the way we are. And it's actually a church that does that well is a mature place. That's a successful place, a church that does that well. So to bless people means to do them good, to pray for them, to tell them you wish them well in some way or another. You see the opposite thing in, in dynamic play out with kids all the time, don't you? You see it. You see it with your own kids. One kid says, "You're stupid," you know, and the other kid typically doesn't respond. You know, I love you. I want to pray for you. It typically doesn't happen, right? You wish it would happen. Sometimes something close to that might happen in our house, but oftentimes it's a tit for tat, fire back and. Someone says this, and the other one says, no, you are. And it's just this back and forth. And Peter's calling us away from being children. Listen to Jesus. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. What is Jesus talking about here? I mean, are we, are we doormats? Well, sort of. For the gospel. Isn't all the things he's saying here if someone wants to sue you, right, what do they want to do? They want to claim that what you have is theirs. So he says, okay, well, give him your shirt that he's suing you for and give him your cloak too, right? Bless them. You know what Jesus is saying? Bless them. Give them more. Whoever wants you to go one mile, forces you to go one mile, give to him or uh, go to it. Sorry. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Again, bless them. 
Don't carry their armor one mile, carry their armor two miles. This is love. This is, this, it really is. It's, it's loving your enemies. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Again, there's wisdom for each particular situation. But you've you got to still let the text do its work in your heart. You're trying to adorn the gospel well here. In this era of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates in the new covenant, the operative principle that holds the church together and is the mode of our operation toward those who offend us is not eye for an eye. It's not tooth for a tooth. It's turn the other cheek. <laughs> turn the other cheek doesn't, is not what tooth for tooth really meant, as some Reformed guys would like to tell us as they explain Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. No. Turn the other cheek in some way alters that, that M.O., The operative principle under the Old Covenant is eye for an eye. It was a theocratic system. A system where you take offenses to the magistrate and they judicially judge. And it was a good system in that sense. But in the kingdom of God, our operative principle is not eye for an eye. It's turn the other cheek. It's go with the one who wants you to go. One, go with them two. Extend yourself further. This is the behavior that Jesus calls us to. Good works done in such a way, as Jesus says, light that shines in such a way that causes people to ask, what kind of hope do we have within us? Jesus goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's easy, right? That's what the world does. The world, the families love each other, right? In the world. Family is, in some ways, in America at least, is, is sort of an idol where it's, it's family is ultimate, not God. Not Jesus Christ, but family is ultimate. And, and they love each other in this family, and that's right, they should love each other. But Peter says, if all you're doing is loving those who love you, well, that's what the world does. They've already got that down, so how, what sets you apart? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So this is Jesus' call to us to be like his Father, loving those who mistreat us. So can people say of you, like father, like son, in this passage? Will people say that we are a closed-hearted people only loving those and caring caring for those who enhance our lives or those who love us? Or do we love our enemies too? So how do we do this? How do we keep this attitude? How do, we, how do we keep this mindset continually? I mean, you have to, it's an everyday thing you have to put on in some ways. Right? Because today, somebody's going to pull out in front of you in traffic, I'm sure, and you've got a choice. <laughs> you're going to ride up on their tail, right? And return evil for evil, or you're going to, you know, not do that. And maybe next time, let them through. Right? That's a blessing. A sort of a 
casual example, but you know what I mean. We're running into this all the time. But how do we maintain this mindset? Well, we, we maintain this mindset by remembering that, that this life of blessing those who do us evil is the life we are called to. It is no mistake, it is no accident that we find ourselves suffering and then therefore called to bless those who cause us suffering. And this is what he says here. For hereunto you were called. The New American Standard, I don't feel like, does a good translation here. The text is literally not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For hereunto you were called. You were called to this life of blessing those who curse you. You were called to this life of, of not returning insult for insult. so that you might inherit a blessing. So we are motivated to bless those who insult us and love our enemies because this is what God called us to. This is the Christian life. The path to eternal blessing is the path of tribulation and loving enemies. That's the path. That's the path we walk. Some of you who aren't Christians in here, you may wonder, what's this Christian thing all about? Well, this is part of it. Part of it is denying your rights for the good of others and their souls. That's the Christian life. And that oftentimes means lots of suffering because you're constantly having to put yourself to death. Put your sin to death, your your selfish desires to death. But listen to it. Peter says it in chapter 2. What credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Right? If you commit a crime and you go to jail, there's nothing noble about that. If you're patiently waiting in a jail cell for a crime you committed, there's nothing noble about that. But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, ah, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Did you hear that? For you have been called for this purpose, suffering unjustly and patiently enduring it. You have been called for this very purpose. As Christ did, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, one of the ways that we continue on in this life where we bless those who insult us and, and demean us and say harsh things about us is to remember that this is the life God has called us to. This is, this is part of the instructions on the road. He called us to live this life of Christ, to walk as he walked. And how did he walk? He walked without reviling back, without threatening back. And instead, he gives massive blessing in healing others through his own stripes on the cross. This is what we do. We remember the big picture. We remember that that the lost who insult us and even professing believers who wrongfully accuse us are duped by Satan to do his will. And we strive to keep their eternal good in mind. We bless the lost who curse us because we don't want to see them cursed of God. We continue to love them despite their scorn. We bless our fellow brothers and sisters who mistreat us because we know it's possible for them to get snared by the devil, to slander or believe wrong things about us. And it happens. It doesn't mean that we condone the slander or, or we, we, we admit that, yeah, we really are that when we're not. 
We certainly always want to reflect if some of something that they're saying is true. We always must do that. That's humility. But we don't seek to shame them before others in gossip. As a leader, I'm constantly convicted by Paul's statements that we are not lords of people's faith, but we are helpers of their joy. We are there to always help them. We are there not to lord them, but to help them, to get them through a matter. Even when they're ensnared in an opinion that's not true about you or about leaders, we want to help them through. So hereunto we are called. We are called to this life, the life of Jesus, blessing others when we are cursed and insulted. Peter says, hereunto you are called so that you might inherit a blessing. Peter uses the clause here, so that, to say that the life of loving enemies is the path that results in eternal blessing. It's the only path that results in eternal blessing. He's saying, I brought you onto this path of blessing those who curse you so that you might inherit a blessing. It almost sounds causal, like like you've earned the blessing by blessing those who curse you and not retaliating and those kinds of things. But, But it's not that. It's not that we're earning this blessing. He uses the term inherit. An inheritance is not earned, right? It's freely given. And here, I think clearly, it's the eternal inheritance Peter referred to in chapter one. So Peter isn't saying that we earn this blessing by loving enemies. But... All who inherit the blessing are called to and will live lives of loving enemies and blessing those who insult and offend us. It's the exclusive path to glory. In other words, the path to glory is not one of hating enemies, only loving those who love you, and living a life where you constantly seek to justify yourself before men. If you're on that road, you're on the road to destruction. That's not the road of the gospel. That's the road of the world. That's just the way they operate. They love those who love them. If you don't like them, they don't like you and they're not going to treat you well, that's just the world. If that's you, you're not in Christ. You're not on the road to the eternal blessing that he offers. The path to glory is denying yourself and fellowshipping with the sufferings of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He ties the inheritance and our suffering and our glory all together. Listen to it. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs also. It's glorious truth, isn't it? Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. If, indeed, that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. So you can, you can claim that you're an heir of God, you're a child of God and the Spirit, and you have the Spirit and all these things, and you'll experience eternal glory if you suffer with Jesus. Think about that. What, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? What, what kind of condition is that, Paul? What kind of condition is that? Everyone suffers in this life. Just because you suffer doesn't mean you get glory. Everybody suffers at some level. People lose family members, you get sick, you get a broken leg, whatever, people treat you harshly, whatever it is. Most of us experience that, but what's the difference between the way we suffer and the way we, they suffer? We suffer with Jesus. That's the difference. You know, the, the, the parable of the soils, the person that ends up sort of fading away, 
is the person that faces affliction because they're Christians and they just fade out. They wither away because they can't take the heat anymore. They can't take the pressure. They can't take the affliction. They can't take the suffering that comes on them through being a Christian. And what happens? They have no firm root in themselves and then they they fade away. The sun scorches them. But genuine believers don't fade away. They don't wither away. They have an inward work done in them that causes them to abide in Jesus when suffering happens. Sometimes suffering happens in your life so that you'll see as you endure it faithfully with Christ that you're legit. Your faith is real. Your union with Christ is real. Some of you who've gone through a tremendous amount of suffering and yet you're still walking with Christ, rejoice! (laughs) Because that means that you are in union with the living Christ. You're suffering with Jesus. And suffering with Jesus doesn't just mean that he's there with you in it. That is what it means. But it also means if he's with you there in it, you're going to be doing it like he did. Well, what was that? Well, it was blessing those who cursed him. This is the pathway to glory. You suffer with Christ, you get glorified with Christ. If you think Christianity is anything other than that, you've missed it. If you think it's anything other than denying yourself, taking up your cross, being selfless for the sake of others, then you've missed it and you're not on the road to glory. This is what Paul means. I've called you to this life so that you inherit eternal blessing because that's the only road to lead to blessing. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God, right? Through many tribulations. I think he says we must. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. That's what he says. We must. This is the way it has to happen. Why? Because our whole life is patterned after our master, the Lord Jesus. And what was his life? Misrepresentation, rebuke, slander, mistreatment, being beaten, taking on the blame of other, I mean, that others should have owned. I mean, th- this is his whole life, dying for the sake of righteousness. Th- this is his life. This is going to be our life. Peter isn't calling us to something that's different than Christ. He's calling us to the life of Christ. That's what he's calling us to. We suffer with Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs, theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Now again, is Jesus naive? Is Jesus like, are you out of touch? How am I supposed to rejoice in this? But he says, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You find yourself in the line of Isaiah, who was probably sawn into for the truth. You find yourself in the place of Jeremiah. You find your place, your, your, yourself in the place of Daniel. If you're persecuted, insulted, for whatever reason, for you're upholding the truth in your life, following Jesus Christ, you are blessed. You're doing it right. It's a sign that you're doing right. And Paul actually says of others that are mistreating you, it's actually a sign of their destruction. Of course, the world doesn't see it this way. They see it the opposite, right? They pity you at some level, and they don't pity themselves. But they're the ones who need the pity. 
Jesus says in Luke 6, Blessed are you when when men hate you and ostracize you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, he says. Leap. He doesn't just say be glad. He says leap. That's in the text. It's in the original. Leap. Jump up and down. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for the same where their fathers used to treat the prophets. Brethren, you must have the right perspective about insults for the sake of Christ. You've got to have that right perspective. And for some of you who get this persecution from your own family members and friends and neighbors, those close to you, you've got to put this mindset on you every day. And sometimes you're not going to have it. Sometimes you need to go back to the Lord and you say, look, I... (laughs) I've been harboring bitterness, Lord. Just help me to have your heart in these things. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from those things. But this is the perspective we are to have all the time. You're supposed to take God's assessment of these insults, not man's. Peter comes up to the Lord and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say, you, say to you up to seven times, but up to 77, 70 times seven. I read this passage because it, again, touches the heart. We, we need to have hearts that are just willing to let offenses go. That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not literally saying, 491, you don't have to forgive them anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying an innumerable amount of times. And you know Why? Because you've been forgiven of an innumerable amount of debt against the God of heaven. And that's why he goes on right after and brings up the parable of the man who was was forgiven of of an absolutely impossible amount of debt incurred. And the king forgives him. And that man turns around and he goes to the one who owes him a few bucks and he wrings their neck and he says, pay up, pay up. And Jesus points this parable out. on, On this man that was not willing to forgive even though he was forgiven of an immense debt. And what it revealed is that he never really fully understood who he was and what kind of debt he really had. You go around pointing your finger at everybody else, calling everybody else idiots, and going around saying that, you know, thinking that you're better than everybody. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you were if it weren't for the grace of God. Jesus says we must be ready to forgive, Peter. Even, even, even when we are praying and we remember resentment or bitterness or the offenses of others toward us, Jesus says in Luke, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Think of that. Nobody's even around him. He just remembers. When you're standing praying and you remember that you have an offense against someone, when you stand praying, forgive. Forgive. Even there. You forgive and let things go even when it's just you there thinking of the offenses that have occurred. And if you do, Jesus says your Father will forgive you. See what I mean? It's the path to glory. If you don't have a heart of forgiveness, you don't make it to glory. Your Father will not forgive you, Jesus says in Matthew. That's pretty sobering. He just says that because he's saying, listen, the heart of the the Christian 
And the path to glory is the heart of loving enemies and forgiving others. That's what it is. And if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father's not going to forgive you. Why? Because it reveals that you don't have a heart that really wants him. You don't have a humble heart. So much more can be said. 1 Corinthians 4, 9-13, Paul says this, For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are prudent in Christ. Paul exercises sarcasm here. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Now listen to this. Paul says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world. The dregs of all things, even until now. Now, Paul isn't really thinking that from the standpoint of God that he's scum, but from the standpoint of the world, he really is. He knows that that's the way the world regards people like him. You know, talking with my father-in-law, James, this, this whole idea of loving your enemy is absolutely repulsive to Muslims. They think it's utter sign of weakness. To think that you would go and, 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 and forgive those who offend you in some way or do you wrong. They think it's utter weakness. He was just telling me this yesterday. But Paul says, when we are reviled, we bless. (laughs) Neighbor so-and-so doesn't like that we've come around their house sharing the gospel. Well, next time we go leave a plate of cookies at their door. I don't know, something like that. Right? We bless. Our greatest concern is for your soul. One day this world's going to roll up, isn't it? History's going to stop and only what is done for Christ will last. Our offenses take on a much different perspective when we think of it that way. Right? So this is Peter's instruction toward those who mistreat us. And there's lots of questions this raises. Right? This doesn't mean like if a business scams you, blessing them means you continue to give them your money or keep propping them up. That's not what Peter is after here. Right? Letting the business die is probably best for them and best for everybody else. Doesn't mean you help perpetrate evil. It doesn't mean with people who are divisive in the church that that you go to them and and, and you and you lie to them about I don't know, just something fabricated. If you know that people are causing division in the church, you don't go to them and say, Well, you know, we're just so glad you're here, we love you. And then you never bring up anything else. That's, that's not what Peter's saying here. That's not the blessing that these people need. No, Paul says when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We try to approach them. The word is parakaleo. It means we come alongside them and appeal to them. We regard them as brothers and sisters until we have reason not to assume this. And yet we give them what's truly best for them. And that could just be admonishment. Done in gentleness, but, but done. And again, Peter isn't saying things like blessing those who want to do you evil doesn't mean if someone breaks into your house to do you evil, we bless them and say, hey, come take whatever you want or whoever you want. That is not what that means. But it does mean that we are not motivated fundamentally by spilling someone's blood. There, there is that something there, I think, that we have to be careful with. Right? Can't be, we can't be bloodthirsty people. 
does blessing those who insult us or mistreat us or, or, or do fall horrible things to us, I mean, th- does it mean that we entrust important things to them? I'm thinking here of a, of a husband who cheats on his wife or a wife who cheats on the, hus- on the, on the husband. So maybe, maybe the, the Christian wife who has her husband cheat on her, she forgives him, yet she doesn't trust him. I mean, that, Peter isn't saying that, because that would be unwise. But he is saying there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness there. That trust has to be built back. Anyway, there's so many case studies, aren't there, about how to make this stuff work. But fundamentally, what you want is you want the other's good. You want to do what's best for them, truly. What's best for them, truly. I'll just leave you with this. In Psalm 3, David literally run out of town because of the malice and envy of his own son, Absalom. And what did he do? Well, he could have. He could, in the dark, dark of night, gone and slit his son's throat. He could have had it done. But he didn't. He ran out of town. And there were all kinds... I mean, Absalom had the hearts of the people. I mean, David was king. He was loved and praised for all of his exploits. And, and here's his son taking his plates and gaining the hearts of the people. And David is sitting here just thinking, how betrayal. All the betrayal and all the all the heartache and all these things. And what does David do? He takes refuge in the Lord. That's what he does. Psalm 3. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Many adversaries. What are adversaries? I mean, adversaries are enemies. People that want your harm. People that want you shamed. People that doesn't, don't want you to prosper. And what does David do? He takes these things to the Lord and he says, But, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. And then he says to all of us, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. Did it mean that he immediately put Absalom to flight? No. It didn't mean that at all. You know what it meant? That night, David went to sleep. Because right after that he says, I took these things, the Lord answered me from his holy mountain, I laid down and slept, for the Lord sustains me. He was able to go to sleep. Because he rolled over his anxieties onto the Lord. And the Lord answered from the holy mountain. It's powerful when God gives you the ability to face the fact that you've got adversaries everywhere and you can just go to sleep. (laughs) In peace. Because you end up taking on the Lord's perspective. The Lord has you. Vengeance is the Lord's. Justice belongs to the Lord. This whole thing belongs to him. And David, in praying, had that perspective restored to him. Brethren, what Peter's calling us to is not natural. It's not native to us. We can bless our enemies and bless those who curse us only as we go to the Lord and seek his strength continually. And I mean this. It has to do with going to him who can give you strength to do this. He's not saying this is native or natural to you. David knew that. That's why he went to the Lord. We need the Lord to answer from his holy hill. Sometimes every day. Sometimes multiple times a day. On these matters of offense. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you that, um, Lord, wherever there's been imbalance, I pray, Lord, that you would um, help us think about it rightly. I pray, Lord, for those in here who perhaps are holding on to bitterness, Lord, that you'd set them free from that. Um, Lord, thank you that you can set free. Thank you that I know in my life where 
there's been jealousy or envy or those kinds of things that have taken a foothold. Lord, you've revealed that to me and I've confessed it and you've set me free to remember that I'm in you. My identity is in you. My, my values is, 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 is set at, at, at the cross. And Lord, you'd help us to live in that freedom and that security that only you can give. Be with my brethren here, Lord, that we all would have warm hearts and thick skin. And that we would live lives in your steps. In Jesus' name, amen.